You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2012. Today's episode is titled, Invest in What Will Be Blessed. You might be inclined to think that investment decisions are only made by financial professionals or want to be financial professionals. But in fact, we are all investors. Every moment of every day, we invest. Every thought and action is an investment decision about how to utilize our time, talent, and or treasure. How do we make wise investment choices? The process of building an organization is an investment process. To deliver an excellent value proposition, management must seek to align the organization with the will and ways of God. Management must find the right people, see four people, and then train the people in the will and ways of God. Each person in the organization must be truly committed to the Lord and doing what God created him or her to do. Both organizational and individual success must be defined as obedience to God. What I'm going to present to you is a synopsis of a day and a half seminar that I do on biblical worldview of investing. If you want more details, you can go to my website and you will find the audio from that seminar is available there on the website. If you'll just go to the audio products, if you go to the bottom of the home page, you to a whole series of audio products, and one of them will be a biblical worldview of investing. And you can get information and you can download the product there. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. So today, all we can do in this session is to try to get your appetite wet. I want to get you guys engaged very quickly. And so I'll be asking you probing questions. So are you ready for probing questions? Okay, well, let me just ask you this question. Who wants to be rich? If you want to be rich, hold up your hand. Now tell me why you want to be rich. So you can give? You think that's the right reason? I want to be rich so I can give? I want to be rich to buy time? To take dominion? Do we want to vote on those? Okay. Let me suggest that we need to begin to think very strategically about money. I was teaching at a church here a couple years ago and was trying to, to illustrate this point. And I asked the question, I said, how do you define provision? They were just stone quiet. There's about 600 of them. Stone quiet. I said, okay, let me offer a definition. Would provision be what you need, whatever it is, to do what you're called to do? Would that be provision? Does that sound like provision? All right, I said, what is the definition of prosperity? What would that be? That is definitely a good definition of prosperity. Some people would say it's having more than what you need to do what you're called to do. Would you agree that's a definition of prosperity? Come on, would you agree or not? Yes or no? Yes, you all agree? Okay, may I disagree? Do I have that privilege to disagree with you? You knew that, huh? You knew it was a setup, huh? Yeah, I was at a table with a group of young people recently with my wife. We were having dinner, and they're talking about money and everything. And I asked him, I said, so you guys want to be rich? And my wife said, this is a setup. (laughs) Let me offer this definition of prosperity. I think prosperity is having what you need to do what you're called to do. Would you be prosperous if you have what you need to do what you're called to do? Would you be prosperous? So, with my worldview, which is built around an intentional, purposeful God, provision and prosperity are the same. Suppose that 
you were to go to your online bank account, I'm sure all of you have online access to your bank now. You go online to check your bank balance, and suppose that you found in your bank account that there had been deposited $100 million. Just suppose that had happened, okay? Now, what would you do with that? <laughs> check to see if it's legal. Let's assume it's legal. It's for real. It really happened. You got $100 million in your bank account. What are you going to do? Very good. Because we have an, a God who's purposeful. There is intent. There is a reason why that is there. And when you first look at it, you may not know why it's there. I was at the same church, and I shared this same example. As soon as I said, you know, what if you had $100 million in the bank? I had a lady in the audience like this say, go to Neiman's. Y'all know what Neiman's is? It's a very high-end boutique. You can spend a lot of money in Neiman's very quickly and walk out with very little. So it was perfect. She illustrated my point because we tend to think like consumers. So we're going to get into some of these concepts, and I want to interact with you like this and challenge you in some of your definitions. So let's just start out with kind of putting a context to this. Let's look at this parable in Luke 19, verses 11 through 17. Now, this is a very interesting parable because Jesus is responding to his perception of what's going on in his disciples. Now, this is right after his encounter with Zacchaeus. He says, while they were listening to this, that is, he's talking to them about Zacchaeus and about Zacchaeus' faith, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. This apparently is a reference to the physical, literal kingdom of God. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this to work, he said, until I come back. Now that word that's translated, put this to work, is one Greek word. It's the Greek word pragmatiomai. Does that sound like anything that you're familiar with? That's right. We get the word pragmatic from it. The word pragmatiomai means conduct business, do business until I return. So he's instructed these servants that he's given these 10 minas to. Each one's given the 10 minas. Each one given a mina. He tells them, pragmatiomai with that mina until I come back. Then he says, but his servants, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now that I propose is what we are doing on planet earth today. We are rejecting the king, and we do it in lots of ways. One way that we do it is when we elect government officials that do not practice biblical principles. That's a way to reject the king. So he was made king and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now, this gives you a clue that God values profit right here. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Now, I haven't been able to discern exactly how much a mina is, but my sense is it's not a whole lot. You know, maybe it's a week or two of wages, maybe a few months of wages, something, but it's not a huge amount of money. But basically, this servant took that one mina and turned it into ten over some period of time, and we don't know how long that was. And the point of the parable is not the time. The point is there is time. Okay? So and the point is take the mina, multiply it, increase it, then there is a reward. This is where we get, if you're faithful and little, you get more. So look at the more here. He says, well done, my good servant. 
Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. Now, suppose that you were called to be, say, just, let's pick a profession. Let's say you were called to be a wait person in a restaurant. You think those people are called to their work? Those that have discerned their calling properly. Okay, and let's suppose that's where God placed you for the whole work career that you had. For 40 years, 50 years. And you faithfully carried out your duties as a wait person for all those years. And then the Lord returns and he calls that wait person and says, look. You have been faithful to do what I put you here to do, so I want you to take charge of the 10 biggest cities on the West Coast. Now, how would you feel about that? Think about that. How would you feel? Going from waiting tables to now I'm governing the 10 largest cities on the West Coast. Yeah, it's a big shock, isn't it? It's like, wow, wait a minute. How is it that I can go from doing this, governing 10 cities? That seems like, wow, that's a huge quantum jump. But I think that's a picture, a picture of the kingdom. The kingdom of God defies sometimes our reasoning and our logic. And we have to let God be God and let him define the rules. And what he's saying is your faithfulness will lead to an incredible promotion. Does that give you any hope, any encouragement? To know that just being faithful in something little can be absolutely give you huge rewards, huge return on investment. Just being Faithful in a little thing. Now, how many of you think your work is kind of a little thing? Come on, be honest. Be honest, be real. If you're not going to be real with me, be real with yourself. Most of us think our work is not all that significant. And so, if you are thinking that, I want to challenge you to think about this parable. That mina was not very significant, at least from the eyes of man. But in the eyes of God, it was a huge test. It was a huge test. When I first went to work for my father in the family business, he put me in an office there. And in this office, there was a stack of bricks. And it was sitting over in one corner of the office. Now, you got to understand that I have, at that time, I'm a young PhD. I'm pretty sure I'm hot stuff. Pretty sure I'm bright. And you need to treat with respect and you call me doctor. Okay. So, anyway, he walks in one day. He looks at me. I wanted to say, you know, even though you're my dad, I'm still hot stuff. And he said, see that stack of bricks over there? I said, yes. If I tell you to move them over there, would you do it? No, what do you think I said? Why? Exactly. I didn't say no. I'm not disobedient. But I have to understand. Why would I do that? What is different between this corner and that corner? I don't see any difference. They're both corners. Whether it's there or there doesn't seem to make any difference on the world. We're not changing any cosmic balance that I can see by moving those bricks. So tell me, why is it that I'm supposed to move those bricks? He said, I just asked you a question. Will you move the bricks? Now, the wheels are turning. You know, all this training I've had, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how does this make any sense? You know, this does not compute at all. And finally, you have this eureka moment. I get it. It's a test. You see what the test is? I'm your authority. I'm your boss in this company. It also happened to be your father, but I'm your boss. If I ask you to do something and you don't understand it, will you still do it? Will you trust me as your boss that I know what needs to be done, even if you don't? You see, that was the test. So it was a little bitty test that had big implications about whether or not I would be qualified to be promoted and run that company. So it's very important how we pay attention to minus little bitty things. This parable tells us that 
I think it's a picture of our current age that we all have been given a mina. You need to recognize that's the game we're in. We're in the game of taking our minas and being faithful, and that's called investing. Now, we think of investing in terms of dollars and cents. That's how we view it. But God's bigger than we are. He thinks beyond how we think. And so we've got to begin to get investing from his perspective. There are two types of investments. Look at Luke chapter 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? What is the difference between worldly wealth and true riches? What is that? What's worldly wealth? Money, physical assets. What are true riches? True riches is wonderful because it has value not only here, but for eternity. See, worldly wealth only has value here. Wisdom. Wisdom is one of the greatest aspects of true wealth. Other aspects of true wealth would be just character development. You know you can't buy character? You know, Bill Gates can write the biggest check he could possibly write, and he cannot buy character. He cannot buy regeneration. He cannot buy sanctification. Those are sovereign works of God. They're precious. They're riches beyond anything that we can value. So what he's saying here is if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And it goes beyond this. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, how many of you rent anything? You rent anything? What do you rent? You rent cars? Do you rent houses? Boats? Vacation homes? Now, do you treat those assets that you rent just like you would treat them if you own them? If people don't own it, they think they're entitled to mistreat it. And this text tells me right here, the way you qualify yourself to own assets is you treat the assets you're given well, even when you don't own them. I spend money that most people would not spend out of conviction about how I steward someone else's property. How many of you do that? How many of you think like that? Good. Is Stan here? Hello, Stan. One of my clients, he's trying to hide from me, I can tell. He's getting behind Terry Moore where I can't see him back there. Stan's in a rented facility in the great state of Texas. And a couple of years ago, Stan had kind of treated this facility like a rented facility. And then he got convicted of this reality. And he got convicted he needed to treat this building just like it was his own. Like he was going to own it for the rest of his life. And so he went in there and he cleaned it up and he repainted it and he fixed it all up. And now when you walk in there, instead of being kind of a dungy, dirty place, it's a clean, neat, inviting environment. And it's totally changed the feel of the facility. And I have no doubt if we were able to sit down with the Lord and he were able to show us what the implications would be, he would show us that this has actually paid for itself over and over again. Now, we may not always be able to track that kind of detail, but I'm convinced that when you act that way, you will reap the reward of that faithfulness. He's treated that building just like he owned it, even though he doesn't. And that's going to qualify him for assets of his own. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I find that is a very troubling text because all of us, at some level, want to serve God and money. And I find most of the people I work with, you know, in my world is basically my clients and my church 
And so that's what most of the people I interact with are in those worlds. And I find over and over again, it doesn't matter where I go and working with people or what church environment I get into, people tend to want to worship money at some level. And Scripture says you can't do it. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter how hard you try. God's rules are you cannot worship God and money. So we have to recognize that reality. True riches are real wealth. It basically is wisdom. It is the perspective of God. And let me just define knowledge of wisdom for you. And I got this from one of my early men that discipled me, Bruce Waltke. Does anybody know who Bruce Waltke is? He is a fairly well-known Old Testament Bible scholar. He's in his 70s now. But Bruce is a very, very good Old Testament scholar. He's written a book on Proverbs. It's a two-volume commentary. It's profound. His insight is profound. But in his teaching on Proverbs, he defined knowledge and he defined wisdom. He says knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. That's what knowledge is. Would you say that's a pretty good definition of knowledge? Understand how God's universe works. Wisdom is the skill to live well in God's universe. Knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. In taking dominion, that's largely what we're doing, is we're understanding God's rules, how things work. Wisdom is the skill now built on knowledge to live well in God's universe. So, to me, that's the essence here of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better return than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Now, when you really want something, you really, really want something, what do you do? Well, how do you do that? Don't you have to go after it, pursue it, with every part of your being, every fiber of your being, every waking thought and moment, and you're pursuing, trying to gain that thing, whatever it is. Now, how many of us are really pursuing wisdom like that? Most of us aren't. We're here, but most of us in part of our daily life, we don't make wisdom a driving agenda in our life. Most of us are just trying to survive. Would you agree? I was talking to a church leader the other day. We were talking about what church is all about and what it should be all about and those kinds of things. And she was just kind of setting back. She's part of a church that's kind of dying. It's had a number of problems and, you know, had moral failures on the part of pastors and all kinds of messes, and that just creates all kinds of problems. And she was sitting back thinking, well, gee, I've been involved with this church for 10 years. She's on the board. This is a church that does allow female elders, so she's in a sense an elder there. And she's just reflecting back on all that. And she says, you know, all we're doing is just kind of enabling the people to survive. That's all we're really doing. They're not changing. They're not growing. they got the same problems, same issues. Every Sunday, we just kind of patch them together for another week. That's what's going on generally in Christianity today. Tangible, of course, investments are physical riches, and we all know what that is. And we're charged to pay attention to physical riches. We're not supposed to ignore it. Sometimes people get the mindset that Christians are supposed to be poor. That's a good thing. And they look at Jesus and say, he didn't have any money. In fact, in the book of Luke, it says that Jesus lived off the charity of women. The women that followed him around were actually providing his needs. So it appears that when Jesus died, he died broke. With virtually no assets. He didn't have any homes. He didn't have any cars. He didn't have any portfolios. He didn't have any 401ks or didn't have any wineries or cattle or whatever. He didn't have any of that. And so a lot of people look at that and say, well, that's a sanction for us to be poor. No, what's a sanction for you to be poor is when that's what you need to do what you're called to do. That's what sanctions you to be poor. What sanctions you to be rich is you need that to do what you're called to do. 
which means it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. What matters is do you have what you need to do what you're called to do? Proverbs 21 tells us, though, part of our stewardship of physical riches is to be wise about how we steward them. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. What that's telling me is righteousness, which is pursuing the will of God according to God's principles, will lead me to prosperity. And prosperity is having what I need to do what I'm called to do. That is what prospering is. Let me give you some definitions here. This is a common definition. In finance, the purchase of a financial product or other item of value with an expectation of favorable future returns. In general terms, investment means the use of money in the hope of making more money. So this is a common definition of an investment. Let's look at another definition here. In business, the purchase by a producer of a physical good, such as a durable equipment and inventory, in the hope of improving future business. That would be an investment too. And those are valid definitions. But let me just offer to you a better definition. And this is what I think is a more biblical definition. It is the adroit stewardship of the tangible and intangible assets of a person's or organization's time, talent, and treasure in alignment with the purposes of God. So how does that strike you? That seem reasonable to you? That seem to line up with your understanding of Scripture? I mean, you always want to test what you're hearing. Does this line up with what I understand Scripture to be? Not that you're the judge, but, you know, you're having to wrestle with your worldview all the time. And so you always have to assess what you're hearing and perceiving against your worldview. So, again, it's the adroit stewardship. You know what adroit means? Skillful. Showing great skill. You know, it's being very astute. So it's the astute stewardship of the tangible and intangible assets of a person's or organization's time, talent, and treasure in alignment with the purposes of God. So I'm going to suggest that is the best definition I know of. These other two definitions are fine in their place, but they're not as comprehensive as the one I'm proposing. So time is about the number of days that you have. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now let me ask you, who's an accountant? Is there an accountant in here? CPA? Okay, back in the back, we have an accountant. Okay, good. All right, why do you take inventory? If you need to come up with your answer, why do you take inventory? If you're going to validate your balance sheet, you need to know if your inventory is right, correct? So it's a way to know where you are. The balance sheet is a picture in time of the financial condition of an organization. Now, does everybody know what a balance sheet is? It's a generally a one piece of paper. Now, sometimes accountants make it two or three, but it doesn't have to be. They just decide to do that. One piece of paper, and it's got two columns. The left-hand column is your assets, all the assets of the organization listed out there and valued. Okay? And then there's a total at the bottom. Then on the right side, the second column, there are two parts to that column. There's a liability part, and underneath that, there is an equity part. And basically, it's a list of all your liabilities, and they're valued. Okay? And then the equity will be the difference between the total assets minus the total liabilities is your equity. So when you add the liability total to the equity total, you have the same number as the asset total. That is why it's called a balance sheet. 
In my consulting practice, I see balance sheets all the time. And it's very amusing to me when accountants give me balance sheets that do not balance. But I get those from time to time. I'm always interested to know, I wonder how you got this balance sheet out of balance. You know, what is it that's wrong with this balance sheet? Balance sheets are supposed to balance. That's the definition. Well, a key part of that balance sheet on the left-hand side is an area that says inventory. And that inventory is a listing of all your physical inventory. Depending on what you've got it, you know, if you're in the lumber business, it's all the lumber you got. If you're in a food business, it's all your food product. Whatever you have in inventory that you are trying to sell. So the reason I want to bring that up is because it's to understand why you take inventory of things. It's to understand where you are so you can make decisions about where you want to go. See, when you're looking at a balance sheet, you're trying to understand the condition of the company, and you can't make good decisions about the future unless you know where you are. Well, that's what this text is all about. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, he's saying, take stock. How many of you know in what year you will be 85? Some of you know that. Okay, that's good. This is a good exercise. 85 is a pretty good estimate of most of our life expectancies. Now, that's not, obviously, that's going to vary, but, you know, that's a pretty good number for most of us. So let's just figure it out. Take your birth year. Everybody know when they were born? Can you add 100 to it? Can you do that? Everybody can do that in your head? Add 100. I was born in 1947, so I can add 100. That's 2047. Now, subtract 15 from that number. In 2032, I will be 85, Lord willing, if I live that long. So now I can take stock. I can take inventory. I can number my days from today to 2032 and have a good sense, some reasonable sense of where I'm going. Now, why is that important? Why do I need to know that? What does it say? That I may gain a heart of wisdom. Wow. By sitting down and assessing where I am in life, I can get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is a skill to live life well. How many want wisdom for living life? You want wisdom for investing? Is that why you're here? Well, this is the kind of things you do to get that wisdom. You know, most of us just wanted to, just tell me how to get rich quick. You know, tell me how to make a bunch of money. No, in God's universe, it's a little more involved than that. If you want to do well in God's universe, you've got to line up with him. It starts with your heart. It starts with your life being committed to him and walking out that reality. So we've got to value time the way God values time. Talent. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Take whatever your God-given talent is and start being a great worker. Wherever you're assigned, be a great worker. Treasure. So if you've not been trustworthy handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, we need to start treasuring worldly wealth as a predicate to wisdom. How you steward your worldly wealth facilitates wisdom in your life. And so investments are all about taking our minas, which are our time, talent, and treasure. That's what I think a miner represents. And adroitly, skillfully stewarding those things, multiplying those talents in such a way that we line up with God to do the will of God for our life. Oh, that was the introduction. So let's do some exercises here. First one there, a Ponzi scheme is an investment strategy where future investors are paying the return on investment for earlier investors. Is this a biblical investment? Tell me why. No increase in value. Okay, why is there no increase? There's no real investment. Oh, there's no real investment here. 
I mean, how long was Madoff going? I saw one report that he had been doing this for 40 years. Now, he's, what, early 70s, something like that? Now, the only reason he got caught, as far as we know, is what? Anybody know? No, it wasn't that. He had a number of investors from Europe asking for their capital to be returned. And the request exceeded what he was able to raise. He was out just days before he admitted this, trying to raise more capital to pay those investors off so he could keep the Ponzi scheme going. You see, this could have gone on a long time, particularly with the SEC asleep at the switch. Apparently, he had inside connections there. Maybe there's something going underneath the table, too, to keep him off. But he was able to keep the regulators off, and as a result, he went on for 40-some-odd years. So the thing to understand about a Ponzi scheme is that there's no real investment. All right, the next question. Is investing in a multi-level marketing company a biblical investment? Multi-level marketing company? You know what a multi-level company is? Multi-level marketing company is basically about recruiting people to work underneath you to sell a product or service. All corporations are multi-level. Well, I'm talking about one that is specifically the marketing strategy is through people. Now, there's direct selling companies and there's multi-level companies. There's a distinction there between those. And some of you may know those distinctions, but we just want to talk about multi-level. Multi-level is traditionally about recruiting people, and revenue is generally generated off the recruitment fee. You know, I get Tom to come work for me, and he pays $100 as an entry fee, and then, you know, he comes in and gets trained, and he goes out and tries to recruit other people. So it's all this recruiting going on. There are some states that are very aggressive about prosecuting those. That's correct. But a lot of them exist, and they've always existed. They've been around a long time. All of you have been exposed to them. There's probably not a person in this room has not had a pitch for a multi-level company. So is investing in a multi-level marketing company a biblical investment? No. Okay, why? Tell me why it isn't. <laughs> now, that is a very good answer. What she said is it's generally driven by the worship of money. Every pitch I've ever seen about it started out with, you know, don't you want to make a bunch of money? How would you like to make a bunch of passive income? Okay. It's all appealing to my sense of wanting a bunch of money for my own purposes. I don't want money for my purposes. I want whatever resources I need to do the will of God. That's what I want. And so we've got to begin to think differently. The world gets all infatuated by this. Direct selling companies can be different because in those companies, the focus is on the product. So if you have a quality product that's really bringing blessing and value to a person's life, you're helping them advance the kingdom of God in their life. So direct selling companies to me are a little different. All right, is investing in a church building program a biblical investment? Okay, well, tell me about Depends. So what's the purpose? Why would we build a building? You do know that for the first 300 years of the church's existence, there were no buildings. And you do know that the first church buildings were built by a pagan using public money. Constantine. He used public money to build the first church buildings. Do you know why he did that? It was not because he was convinced of the legitimacy and the efficacy of the Christian faith. It's he wanted to elevate it to be a comparable alternative to all the other pagan religions. And so since all the other pagan religions had temples, then he needed, we need to build temples for Christianity. And so that's how buildings got started with Christianity. How does that make you feel about your building program? You know, we need to understand these things, guys. You know, when we're dropped onto planet Earth, we're dropped into a context. When I showed up in 1947, I showed up into a context. And I started going to Baptist church when I was four years old or whatever. 
And I was in that church for a long time, and I was all of a sudden in that context. I didn't have a clue where this came from or what it meant, anything. I just, they start teaching me. And so now as an adult, I'm trying to figure out this whole thing out. What is this? Where did it all come from? And it's an amazing thing what you begin to discover. And we need to be astute enough students to go figure out, you know, where these things have come from. And just because the church wants to build a building, does that mean it's the will of God? Have you seen the Crystal Cathedral? Seen the inside of that? Have you ever wondered what would happen if a Martian were to drop in and just land in the middle of the Crystal Cathedral and just look around? And you say to that Martian, hey, what do you think these people worship? What do you think he'd say? How about a lot of money? I mean, there's a lot of money in this building here. You cannot worship God in money. I think the enemy does the job on us. We have to have places to meet. We want to be meeting that's important. As a Christian community must meet. We have to have places to meet, but we don't have to have the Taj Mahal. So part of what church leadership needs to do is discern what is the will of God. And so when you hear the church leadership seeking the will of God to discern what the facility should be, and you know those are men of God that really do hear the voice of God, and their agenda is not to build a monument to themselves, then you have a whole lot more comfort that maybe this is something I can support. Would you agree? Okay, so that's what I'm looking for. Give me some reason to believe that you're hearing the voice of God. And I am very willing to support you then. So what's the motive for investing? There's a dualistic view of investing and a holistic view of investing. The first one is dualistic. The dualistic view of investing is to make money to support churches and ministries, and we define that as kingdom work. I heard a little bit of that of you when we were talking about you know, why do you want a bunch of money? And I heard the word to give. I mean, how many times, and some of you may feel this way, how many times have you heard people say, I want to be rich so I can give a bunch of money to the kingdom? Have you ever said that? What was going on inside of you when you said that? What's going on when you said that? Justifying. Justifying, but it's all about me, isn't it? Look how good I am. Maybe I'm trying to win favor with God. Maybe I want other people to look at me and think I'm hot stuff. I've already been through the hot stuff. Phase that doesn't work very well. That's what a good reason to make money. We want an excuse to be rich, and we want to be rich so we can do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, where we want to do it. We want to be rich to be independent. That's really the agenda. And see, I submit to you that's the dualistic perspective. It's really all about me and my money. I call that M M&M and M people. M M&M and M people are about me and money. I know nobody here resembles that, but I've heard of it and I've seen it. But I know nobody here does that. I know we're all holistic, right? Okay, holistic view. This is the holistic motive for investing. It's obedience to the Great Commission, number one. I think we need to relabel the Great Commission. The creation mandate is the Great Commission. That is why we're here. The Great Commission, number two, is so that we can do Great Commission, number one. You realize that? Great Commission, number two, is so we can do Great Commission, number one. Great Commission, number one, is we're to rule God's creation. That's what we're put here to do. So that's the first reason for investing is to obey the creation mandate. By the way, this is the reason for business. Now, you might think business is about, you know, supporting yourself. No, that's not the real reason for business. Business is about doing the creation mandate, about ruling God's creation by bringing dominion. In our business activities, that's where we bring dominion. And let me tell you something. We desperately need the local church to do it. You know why we need the local church to do it? Because the local church is supposed to give us the foundation, the worldview, the principles of God that we have to have to do it well. And see, that's where my contention in my church, you think I might have a little struggle in my church? There might be a little bit of a battle going on from time to time? All in, not 
malicious, but seeking truth, challenging truth. I'm always asking the question, why are we doing what we're doing? And what is it saying? I'll just give you an example. About a year ago, we had an engineer in our church that was going to go on a mission trip. Great, go on a mission trip. And we're in a leadership meeting, and somebody says, hey, let's pray over him. I said, great, let's do that. So we all gather around, we pray over him, we send him out. He goes out on his mission trip. A few weeks later, he comes back. First Sunday, he's back. Everybody's glad to see him, you know, gets a report from him. But we didn't pray over him that Sunday. And the next day, he went to work as an engineer. What did we say to him? What did we say to him? Your mission trip, if you do that, that's important. We'll pray for you. But we're not going to pray for you as an engineer. That's not important. Now, I challenge that. That created a conversation in our pastor and elders meeting. Now, hey, I'm not out to be a troublemaker. I just want to face truth. See, what are we doing and why are we doing it? We've got to wake up. Here's the reality. Work is about the creation mandate. Investing is about the creation mandate. Investing is also about alignment with God. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Now, we want to be good students, so what is the context of this verse? What is Jesus talking about when he gives us this verse? You remember? It's all about daily needs. Food, clothing, shelter, that kind of thing. He said, hey, you're more important than birds. I'm going to take care of you. He said, but let me explain to you the game. The game is real simple. Seek first the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, and his righteousness, which is do it according to a biblical worldview. Do it according to my principles. And then what happens when you do that? Your provision is covered. Don't have to worry about that. Now, most of us, see, skip the first part of the verse, and we focus on the last, and we like to fret over that. We have marketplace prayer at our church on Friday mornings at 630. For some reason, I don't know why a lot of people don't just show up for that. Wouldn't you show up at 630 for marketplace prayer on Friday morning? I don't know why you wouldn't, but anyway, they don't. So, But we're gracious. We say, you can send us an email, we'll pray for you. And so last Friday when I was there, I got there at 631. I, I struggle. I have to admit, I am not a morning person. This is real sacrifice for me to get there. So I'm rolling in, and I'm looking at the board. We have a white board, and they list all the prayer requests they've gotten. Now, what do you think I saw on that board? My goodness, all these prayer requests are the same. Everybody's looking for a job. One of the great things about the people that are in this prayer meeting is they're very teachable men. I really love these men, and I have been able to interact with them. And so I'm looking at this, and this is not the first time we've had this conversation, but I had forgotten it. I said, guys, I'm not willing to pray those prayers. They said, why not? I said, because in our culture, when we think about jobs, we think about something I have to do to make a living. That's what we generally mean by jobs. I'm not willing to support that concept. I'm willing to support the concept that everybody on that board has an assignment from God. And I'm going to pray for their assignment. I'm going to pray for their alignment with the kingdom of God, alignment with a biblical worldview, because I know that solves their money problems. That give you brain lock. Oh, that didn't fit. Well, you know, Ron's point as well. Do you understand what he was saying? The days of going to work for one company and working there for fifty years and getting your gold watch and retiring are over. That's what he was saying, and it's obviously a hyperbole. It's not totally true, but there's a lot of truth in it too because things are changing so dynamically now. It's not nearly as stable as it used to be. That's what he was trying to say. Okay, the third thing here is stewardship prepares us to inherit the world. Have you noticed this text in Romans 4, verse 13? It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. You see that? 
heir of the world? What is an heir? An heir is somebody that inherits something. There's inheritance coming through Abraham, who is the father of faith. He is the pattern for us. Because Jesus understood that faith is expressed by works. If you have faith, you will have works consistent with that faith. So he looked at the man's works and says, you have faith. Abraham is the father of faith. And, of course, the big pattern is, of course, taking Isaac to Mount Moriah to kill him in obedience to what God told him to do. And so what he's saying is those of you that have faith like Abraham, you will be heirs like Abraham. We will inherit. And our inheritance comes through our stewardship. Is it okay to buy a lottery ticket with a goal of, if winning, using the proceeds to support mission work and contribute to your church's building campaign? What's wrong with that? Hey, man, that, hey, there are a lot of people that do this. Tell me, is this okay? If you agree, tell me why. If you disagree, tell me why. Okay? Based on luck and not faith. Well, there's no such thing as luck. The lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision from the Lord. Come on. What is this? M&M's. They are M&M's. That's true. Do you guys know what's happened to lottery winners? Has any of you read reports, studies they've done on this? The vast majority, something like 90% of lottery winners wind up worse than they were before they won the lottery. You know, it's interesting to me that the lottery officials, and I can only speak about the state of Texas because that's all I know about, but the lottery officials in the state of Texas, from what I can tell, know the statistics on lottery winners. They know the lottery does not bless them. Okay, should you invest in a company that supports the gay agenda? No. Okay, don't just tell me no. Give me why. I need to know why. All right, that's a reason. Okay, Heather. Orbits. Well, let me tell you this. About a year ago, after I did the first presentation of this seminar, I was determined to try to find some companies that did not support the gay agenda. And my contention is this. Anything that doesn't line up with God will be judged. Gay agenda does not line up with God. It will be judged. Some way, somehow, at some point. I don't know when, don't know how. And I know this. If I try to invest in something that doesn't line up with God... Because I think short run, it's going to have a run up. Problem is, I don't know when to get out. I don't have enough brains to know when to get out. Now, some of you may have revelation on it. I don't. My wife and I have a frequent conversation about this because she thinks we ought to be investing short term in some of these companies that are really not lined up with God. And I don't think so. So it's an interesting point of conversation for us that we haven't resolved. And we're still trying to sort that out. But my contention is that the gay agenda will not be blessed. It will not be supported. It will be judged in time. It's just a matter of when. Well, I was going to tell you what I did. I actually went out and I found a study that had been done. And it was basically the best companies to work for in the United States. They do that just about every year. Now, there are problems with this study because you basically the workers nominate the companies and then it becomes a popularity contest on some level. So, you know, it's not totally objective, but it gives you some sense of companies that the workers feel good about. So I said, okay, that's a good database to start with. Anyway, I've got this study, and I thought, okay, I'm going to take the first 35 companies on this list, and I'm going to take a look and try to assess these companies. And I said, well, let's see, a simple one is, let me just see if they support the gay agenda. And so I start looking up these 35 companies. Now, you can go on their websites, and you can find out a lot about them and what they support. There are also other sites like Domini. You may be familiar with Domini as a site that where you can find some of the stuff out. And so I start researching these things. I probably spent a couple of hours researching. At the end of that time, what do you think I found? 
out of those 35 companies, how many do you think did not support the gay agenda? I found two. Very small companies here in the Northwest that I had never heard of, knew nothing about. 33 of the 35 all supported the gay agenda. I sat back to man, I said, wow, what is the picture here? Where is this all going? And maybe what I was seeing a year ago was a prophetic picture of what's going on today. Okay, should you invest in a company that is antagonistic toward its workers? There's always going to be a judgment call. What you're looking at, though, is what is the policy of the company? And these companies had a policy of supporting the gay agenda. That's what I was looking at. No investment's going to be perfect. You're always going to come down to a judgment call. It is anti-Christian, even though it's being wrapped in a Christian wrapper. There are gay churches today. There are people out there that will tell you that Jesus was gay. They'll ignore Romans chapter 1. They treat it like it doesn't exist. They'll tell you the Bible does not do anything to prohibit gay activity. You know, it's just absurd, the arguments that are out there. Those are challenging situations. You found yourself in the same situation that Daniel did. When Daniel was born, he was born into captivity. He had this unequally yoked relationship now with captors. Well, you have an unequally yoked relationship with this clinic, and you've just now discovered it. So what do you do with that? That's the question. That's a point of discernment. My perspective on those kinds of situations is I always am first looking, is there something redemptive that I can do? And I'm praying about that, looking for action items that I can do. If after a period of time, I can't see anything that makes any sense, then I'm asking the Lord for a release so that I can go on and find a better situation. So that's how I approach it. Ask, seek, knock, pray, seek for options, including redemptive options, and knock when you don't find solutions there that are satisfactory. Start looking for doors you can knock on. Would you invest in a company that's antagonistic toward its workers? Why? You make a bunch of money. What do you think is going to happen? It stifles creativity. It's repressing the purposes of God and those workers, no doubt about it. But would you invest with them or not? Some do, some don't. I wish we had time to do a case study about American Airlines. Randall had a great experience with American a few years ago. American has, for a long period of time, had very antagonistic relationships with their workers. And they have, for a long period of time, struggled to make money. And he flew in one night, gets into DFW late, missed his flight, and so he stands in line at the American counter to get rebooked to his next flight. And he stood in line, I think 30 minutes or so, right up to two or three people away from being served, and all of a sudden the agent shuts down her station and leaves and says nothing. Twice it happened. It was the third window before it finally got served. Now, why is it that people would do that? Because of sowing and reaping. How they're treated is how they're going to treat the customer. These are signs of bad practices that are going to have economic consequences. Okay, how to invest. Deuteronomy 28, invest in people and organizations that seek to obey God. I just noticed this text in Deuteronomy 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All of these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves, the lambs, your basket, your needy trough. Do you see the connection between blessing, obedience, and blessing in the workplace, blessing in your homes. In fact, it even talks about blessing in your communities because it talks about the protection you will have from your enemies. You see, the predicate for prospering in God's universe is obedience. If you want to prosper, you must line up with God and obey him. And so that's how you invest is you start looking for alignment. How well 
are the assets that I'm investing with aligning with God? Now, which is obedience, living as a consumer or a steward? The steward is a person under authority to the master doing the master's will, correct? And here's the reality for all of us, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you have not received? What do you have that's not been given to you? Can you name anything that you have that's not been given to you? Your time, your talent, your treasure, your skill and ability, your opportunities, your success. Everything that you have ultimately comes from God, which means we are simply stewards of these assets. So what's required of a steward? A return is required, but in this, I'm thinking more of this faithfulness. Faithfulness will lead to a return. 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Now, it's required that those who have been granted a trust must prove faithful. Our job is to faithfully steward our time, talent, and treasure. So how to invest? How does a steward use this? First of all, time. We talked about Psalm 90, verse 12 before. Time is something, it's a commodity that God has given you. Your days are numbered. And your assignment is specific. So we need to match up our days to our assignment so that we can do it. That's part of stewarding our time. We steward our talent by recognizing Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 are where the creation mandate and what we call the Great Commission, they meet right here. They connect. You see, verse 10 tells me I am saved to do works that God has ordained me to do. I am not saved by works. I am saved to do works. Do you hear the difference? I am saved by the grace of God, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, to do the works that God has created me to do. And so if I'm going to steward my talent, I have to discern what talent I have and the works that God's assigned me to do and the days he's given me to do it. And then I have to put with it my treasure. And how do I steward treasure well? Well, let me propose to you five basic uses of money. Number one, honor the Lord. Who gave you whatever money you have? Where did it come from? Ultimately, it came from God through the agency of opportunities he's given you through the workplace or through investments you've done or through an inheritance or through gifts from someone. Someone that God orchestrated to get you that money. And so we need to recognize whatever we have has come from God and honor him with it. Number two, we need to give. Ephesians 4.28 says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Number three, save. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Number four, pay your taxes. I know this is kind of a brain lock for a lot of people, but the reality is that no authority exists that God did not ordain. Just go camp on Romans 13 for a little while and meditate on that and ask yourself, God, did you really ordain Hitler? Did you really do that? That's what it says. No authority exists that God has not ordained. How many of you have worked for a dysfunctional boss? Hey, God ordained that. Now, why did he do that? Why would he do that? He works all things together for good. He did it because you needed it to learn something, to grow something. He did it because he had an assignment there for you. He did it because he wanted to do something through you being connected there. He's got lots of reasons for doing things. Our job is not to question. Our job is to get under his purposes and line up with him and do his will. Let me suggest this. Whatever circumstance you're in right now, it's exactly what you need to be in. Whatever circumstance you're in, I don't care what it is, 
It's what you need to be in. Because we have a God who works all things together for good. Now, good is a divine attribute. And we know that from the interaction that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked a question. He was good at asking questions. Why did you call me good? Do you understand what you just said? You called me good. Good is an attribute of God. There's nobody good but God. You said you just said I was God. Do you know you just said that? And so when God's working all things together for good, he's working all things together for alignment with himself. So in that circumstance you're in, he's working it for good, working to align you, everything about that circumstance with his purposes. So when it comes to paying taxes, we've got to recognize even government officials that we may not agree with, we may totally oppose, God has put them there for a reason. And finally, personal expenses. Paul writes, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We're expected to work to pay our living expenses. Yes, that's part of the game. So that's the five ways that we manage our treasure. All right, now, given the five uses of money, I want you to allocate percentages that you feel would be biblically appropriate to honor the Lord, to giving, saving, investing, taxes, and personal expenses. I want to hear your perspective. Just write those down on a piece of paper and write down what your percentages you think it should be. And let me give you a clue. It needs to add up to 100%. I mean, Jack would tell you that. He's, gonna, he's here to audit this, so I expect everybody to add up to 100%. I want you to do it the way you think you should do it. Now, we live in this country, so you have, we have to live under the tax laws of this country. But how do you think you should allocate your asset by percentages here? Okay, has everybody got allocation there? Are you ready? Okay. So the first one, honor the Lord. What should that be? I'm hearing 10. Going once, going twice, sold. 10%. We're good with 10%? Okay. How about giving? I hear 5%. I hear 10%. What's it going to be? 10. The 10 outvoting 5? Okay, 10's outvoting 5. So we're 10% giving. Saving and investing. Did I hear 20? 20. What is it, 10 or 20? 10's outvoting 20s? I think we're going 10. So we're 10 again. So we've got 10, 10, 10. Okay, taxes, 23, 5%. Now, we've got to be realistic what is because we live in this country. We have to pay taxes. If we don't like our tax law, what do we do about it? We need to vote godly people into office that will change it and line up our tax laws with Scripture. Okay, so that's our solution here. So right now we've got to live under it. So what are the percentages? If you look at all your taxes, what would it be? 30, 50 to 70? No, that's after deductions. Put all this is pre-deduction here. 25? Well, we have the accountant has spoken. He's pretty authoritative, don't you think? Okay, so we got 10, 10, 10, 25. Okay, so what does that leave then? 45% for personal expenses. 45 cents on the dollar for personal expenses. Does that shock you? Now tell me, is you see anything wrong with this logic? Does this line up with biblical truth? If it doesn't, tell me where it doesn't line up. The point is, we're dealing with assets in ways that we know from Scripture we should. We know we should honor the Lord. We know we should give. We know we should save and invest. We know we should pay taxes. So, so we're now we're left with what's left is what we have to pay our personal expenses. Now, the principle of giving, we don't have a percentage on that. So we're using what we feel like God's calling us to do. This is an issue between you and the Holy Spirit. You may not be called to these same percentages. Now, the taxes are going to be set. And we have a good guide on honoring the Lord in the tithe. 
but the other percentages are a little more subjective. But still, you have to struggle with what is God saying to you, okay? It becomes a point of conviction. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So you need to have a point of faith here in how you use your resources. So as a point of illustration, and that's all this is an illustration here, as you look at this, you have 45 cents of the dollar being spent on personal expenses. If we are living according to the world's ways, then what happens? 100% goes to the bottom. And if I have anything left, we'll do something in the other areas, and I'll try to get out of my taxes if I can. The reality is that, you know, you're going to wind up paying your taxes, or the IRS is going to pay you a visit, and that's not a pleasant experience, is it, Jack? No, you don't want that. So you wind up not honoring the Lord. You wind up not giving and not saving. See, and that's the problem we have. See, when you follow worldly principles, it leads you down a bad road. So if we're going to steward our assets correctly, we have to understand how to think biblically about how to steward them. You're going to go and change your budgets right now, I can tell. Well, our government has made the tax laws. And whether I like it or not, those are our tax laws. So investments fail because of sin, and they have economic consequences. Some examples of disobedience, greed. Did you know greed is idolatry? That's what it says. Greed is idolatry. When you hear about greed on Wall Street, just say to yourself, idolatry. Every time you hear greed, say to yourself, idolatry, because that's what it is. Immorality, adultery. Adultery will cost your life. Another example of disobedience is divorce. I heard Jack Deere a few years ago talking about finances, and Jack's not particularly a financial expert, but I thought he had three good points. He said there's three ways to basically help you become financially stable and actually prosper. He said, first of all, is you don't spend all you make. Secondly, you don't get divorced. And thirdly, you don't quit one job until you have the other job. Now, those are three little tips that you know, make a lot of sense. Divorce is creating a whole new class of poverty. With women, they have committed themselves to men. They've helped their husbands go through school, helped them get established in their careers, you know, raise their children, etc. They've just devoted themselves to their husbands in their homes, and then all of a sudden the husband decides to find a, a young honey, and he's gone, and now the wife is left with kids and no marketable skills. And many times the husbands don't honor the commitment to really take care of them, so they're left destitute. And we all know cases like that, don't we? Do you know cases like that? Yeah, we all know cases like that. Well, that's the tragedy of divorce. It brings poverty because it's sin. Divorce is sin. Personally, I'm convinced that divorce does not have to be. I think it's in the power. Here's what I think Genesis chapter 3 tells me. It tells me that the judgment on the woman is that she has an inclination that she cannot resist her husband. She cannot resist it. Therefore, within the power of the man... To always woo his wife. She cannot resist him wooing. Now, let me give you a case study, a little example of this. Several years ago, we had a man in our life group that came in one night and he said, my wife has left me. She left me for another man. And we said, okay. So we started praying. And we prayed every week, week after week after week. And, you know, nobody was really getting anything. And finally, somewhere along the road, and I don't even remember how this happened, somebody came up with the idea. He said, Ken, why don't you send your wife flowers every week? Just communicate with her through the flowers that you love her. So we thought, okay, I'll start doing that. So we started doing that week after week after week. This went on, sending flowers, no response, nothing. Finally, after about six or eight months of this, uh, one Friday, the florist says, Ken, I'd love to take your order, but I don't have a delivery guy. And Ken says, do you have the flowers? He said, yeah, I got the flowers, but I don't have a delivery guy. Ken says, okay, I'll take them over there. So Ken goes over to the florist, gets the flowers, takes them over to this man's house where his wife is shacked up now for well over a year. And knocks on the door. His wife comes to the door. Ken holds out the flowers and says, baby, I just want to let you know I love you. 
She grabbed those flowers and threw them to the floor with intensity. Now, what do you think she said? Leave? No, she didn't say leave. She said, I hate it that you're making me love you again. That day she went back, and she's been back every day since. Now, that's the power, I think, that man has over the woman. What happens is we have forgotten that. We don't teach that. We don't counsel people biblically. People come into your office and they've got this seemingly irresolvable conflict. And we say, well, maybe you two ought to just get divorced. Now, how many of you have given that counsel? Come on, raise your hand. Be honest. You're lying to me. I know a lot of you have because I see it all the time. The first default is, well, you know, you guys just can't make it. That is non-biblical thinking. They can make it. They've got to decide that they want to die to themselves so they can begin to come together as one. Genesis chapter 3, it's the judgment. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, we're pronouncing judgment on the serpent, on the woman, on the man. He says to the woman, you know, basically, you will not be able to resist your husband. Basically what he says. All right, let's go on. So why investments fail? Examples of disobedience, misalignment, living beyond your means. That's pretty obvious. In the house of the wise, there's stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has devours it whenever the lord sends you resources we need to be very conscious about stewarding those resources properly otherwise we devour them trying to straddle a fence trying to worship god in money that does not work you cannot worship god in money you have to make a choice what are some signs that you may be worshiping money some signs that you may be worshiping money. i want you to take a piece of paper i want you to write down you know two or three signs of worshiping money Fear, workaholic, emotional tie to bank account. You go up and down. Your emotions go up and down with your bank account. Okay. That may be true of the stock market too. How many has been up and down with the stock market? Wanting to spend even if you don't need to spend it. Like it's going to burn a hole in your pocket. I can't leave it in my pocket. Okay. Owning things you can't afford. Okay. Not worshiping God. So what would that look like? All right. Not tithing. That's good. Spontaneous buying. Thinking about yourself first. Anxious or worried about money. Credit card debt. Gambling, not tithing, uh, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, we got the Joneses in Texas. We we're trying to send them back to Arkansas, but we haven't succeeded yet. Well, that's a good list. Investment success is facilitated by obedience. That is alignment with God. So Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 says this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Isn't that interesting? What will bring you prosperity is hanging on to the commandments of this wise man, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. With me, this is wisdom personified, with me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity, Proverbs 8.18. That's a great chapter. If you've ever wanted to just meditate a little bit on wisdom, read Proverbs chapter 8. Misfortune pursues the sinner, but prosperity is the reward of the righteous. Isn't that interesting? Righteousness is continually connected with prosperity. Obedience is connected with prosperity. Alignment with God. Doing the will of God. This is what facilitates prosperity. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. A greedy man stirs up dissension, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. So you see, prosperity is rooted in obedience. So let's talk about where to invest and with whom. Number one, you need to invest in yourself. Grow in Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
Do you understand when Jesus said that? What was the context of that verse? He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy, but he is living out the reality of that verse. Remember what this is, what Matthew 4 is? It's a temptation. He's just had an epiphany experience in Matthew chapter 3 where he's had the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove. He's heard the audible voice of God affirming him as a son, and then the very next chapter, he is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Isn't that fun? Doesn't that sound like God? Has anybody experienced that? Had an epiphany experience with God, and now you're driven into the desert to be tempted? Some of you may experience that next week. Are you prepared? How do you get prepared? You start praying now. Start praying now because you just might find yourself there. And so you're there in the desert, and here comes the enemy. Forty days without food. Are you hungry? I'd be hungry. I'd be real hungry. The challenge, if you are the Son of God, we're going to challenge the very truth that you learned 40 days ago. What was affirmed by the Father, we're going to challenge that. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Well, I'm hungry, and I certainly can turn them into bread because I am the Son of God. I can do that. But what does he say? Man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Satan, I am not going to truncate what God is doing to satisfy my physical need. Do you see, with this he's saying spiritual food is more important than physical food. Did you hear that? Man does not live by bread alone. If we really believe it, whenever times or stress come and we need more wisdom than ever, what should you do? Invest even more to get spiritual food. We should do the very opposite of what we instinctively do because we go into this fear mode, survival mode, thinking there's not enough, and I've got to be sure that I have food to eat. You see what happens to all of us? And so that blocks then the provision of God in our life. It blocks the prosperity of God in our life. Invest in yourself. Invest in finding your life purpose, what you've been called to do. And, of course, we've looked at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 numerous times, so I'm not going to read it to you again. I'm just going to say this. You have a purpose. A reason for existence you have work to do that God has assigned to you. It counts. It's important. That's why he created you. And so we need to understand that that is an extremely significant part of life. In fact, I would submit to you there are two great things you can do for any person and for yourself. Two great things. Number one, find Christ. There's nothing more important than finding Christ in your life. There's nothing more important in your friend's life than finding Christ. The second most important thing is finding out why you're here. Finding out what your purpose is in life. And that's the second greatest thing you can do for a friend is help them find out their life purpose. So invest in yourself. Invest in growing in Christ. Invest in finding your life purpose. And then invest in holistic disciples. Now, hopefully you understand, when I write holistic disciples, I am being redundant. But I'm being redundant because I feel like I have to be redundant because I feel like we have lost the true definition of disciple. So that's why I'm doing it. So please... I'm not trying to suggest there's such a thing as a dualistic disciple. I think a true disciple is holistic implicitly, period. A true disciple knows Jesus. A true disciple walks in what he's called to do. A true disciple manages and stewards his life according to the principles we've been talking about. That's what a disciple does. A true disciple then is lined up for blessing and favor from God. And so that gets us to how do we find that purpose of God? And I'm feeling pressed for time, so I'm not going to go into this other than point you to my strategic life alignment seminar where I point out to you how to use the C4 principle to discover what God's called you to do. And basically the point is to find the target, the bullseye there where the four circles intersect. That's the key 
defining your calling. Now, let's talk about categories of people. And what I want to do here is to give you an illustration of how maturity happens very quickly, and then I want to get you to the main point of the workshop. And that is, how do you invest? Who should you be investing with? You should be investing in disciples of Jesus Christ. Because these are the people that are lining up with the purpose and destiny of God. This is where you're going to get a return on your investment. It's lining up with people that are in the flow and favor of God. Well, how do I know who's getting in the flow of favor of God? Well, here's a little diagram that I have developed as I have been studying discipleship over the recent months, particularly in light of the research at Willow Creek. How many of you are familiar with Willow Creek? Are you aware that Willow Creek is a megachurch? And they did a study a few years ago, and they recognized that discipleship was the game, and they recognized they weren't doing it. So they said, we have failed as a church. Now, that took incredible courage. I cannot tell you how much I respect Willow Creek for making that admission. In fact, the reality is they said that we have failed because we made an assumption, the very same assumption that every megachurch makes. In fact, I don't know of a church that doesn't make this assumption. And that assumption is if you participate with our programs, you will become a disciple. That is the assumption. What Willow Creek discovered was that was not true. They discovered that their programs did not facilitate discipleship. So they began to study how to make disciples. And so they categorized people into five basic categories. You have, first of all, the far from Christ. These are the people that are oblivious about Christ, no interest in Christ. Those people you don't touch. Then you have the curious about Christ. These are the people that are unsaved, that are at least asking questions. You have baby Christians. These are the new regenerate believers. Then you have people beginning to grow in Christ. And finally, you have the mature Christ-centered people. So those are the five categories they came up with. The bottom category, they didn't touch. They didn't know how to touch them. But the other four, they touched. Now, these are all in the notes. So I would encourage you not to write, but to look, because there's a lot on this thing. And you can go back and listen to the audio. And you can listen to other teaching I've done on this, as well as get the notes. So basically what you have here is on the left side you see a state of rebellion down here, a state of surrender up here. And this is what maturity in Christ is. It's going from rebellion to surrender. At the same time, you're discovering your life purpose, your C4 destiny. That's the process that you're in. So how is it that you grow from these various states? Okay, well, they came up with some very interesting data that I think is really consistent with what we teach in the school and what I understand from just my own independent study about how people grow. First of all, what happens here is to go from far for Christ to curious about Christ, you need a reality check. If you have somebody that you know that has no interest in Christ at all, just pray for God to send a reality check. He is a master of reality checks. He will send a reality check at some point in his timing for his purposes. He will do that. Once that reality check has come, they begin to ask questions about Christ. And at that point, what you need to begin to pray is for regeneration to happen. And that's the next facilitator. Regeneration and baptism. Now, why is baptism important? Because baptism is what causes people to begin to identify with the community of Christians. They're moving from being identified with pagans to now being identified with Christians. It is a community experience that they need to begin to engage in. And so baby Christians are just now beginning to connect. This is what most churches do well, is they handle this transition right here pretty well, going from curious about Christ to baby Christians, and from there, their ability to make disciples pretty much drops off. The next step is you have to develop spiritual disciplines. To me, spiritual disciplines are like skeletons. The skeleton in your body is necessary to hold on to meat. The skeleton is the framework. 
you've got to have basic disciplines in your life to begin to change habits. You have bad habits when you're down here as a far from Christ. You don't think like Christ. You don't act like Christ. You don't work like Christ. Nothing is pretty much like Christ. So you've got to build new habits. So that's what this stage here is building new habits so you begin to grow in Christ. And the final stage is as you build those new habits, you begin to incarnate a biblical worldview. That's like meat on the bones. It's now, okay, I've got the habits, I've got the framework, and now I'm going to put meat on the bone, so now I have somebody that can do something in the kingdom. And what they discovered through their research was the only people that really did anything at all that was effective was, guess what, the mature people. Those are the people you need to invest with in whatever it is that God has called them to do. As you connect with people, people of God, and you discern where they are in their growth process, you can discern who you need to be investing with. I'm trying to give you what I think the Bible's saying. What is God going to bless? Obedience, alignment with him. That's what he's going to bless. Prosperity is about blessing. It's about increase. I want to find out what he blesses and get lined up with that. Support that. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Look and see where the Father is bringing maturity into life of believers and then help them find what they're supposed to be doing and bless them, invest in them. How do you know whether or not to invest with a ministry, with a church? How do you know how to do that? What do you do? Pray, seek the Lord, look for biblical principles. Look for alignment with the principles of God. If you're going to invest in a ministry, look and see what that ministry is doing. Look at the fruit of the ministry. How do you know somebody's a Christian? By their fruit. Now, most people, if somebody comes up and says, you know, I'm a Christian, what do you do? You believe they're a Christian, don't you? You know what you do? You've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, you said you're a Christian, so you must be a Christian. That's what we do. Over and over again, I see this in talking with CEOs and managers and business owners. It doesn't matter. Pastors. Oh, well, he's a good Christian. Oh, he is. Well, how do you know? Oh, well, he goes to church. Oh, okay. Does that make him a Christian? He goes to church? Is that it? Where's the fruit? Let me look at his life. Let me look at how he spends his time. Let me look at how he stewards his talent. Let me look at how he stewards his treasure. Do you think I might get more of a clue? Would you get more of a clue? When you go to interview people, have you ever thought about looking at how people steward their lives? Probing into what they do there. Great mechanism for discerning who to hire. I'm going to say this. You make a disciple and invest in him. But I think you'll find him along the way, too. First of all, you've got to understand, too, because there's so much dualism that's going on in the church. Very few people have a clue of their calling. So what you need to do as a father in the faith is go out there and find the sons you've been appointed to, to serve and begin to call them into their destiny. Begin to train them and equip them. And as you do that, be prepared to invest in them. Well, you will know them by their fruit. If they submit to you, you have a chance to introduce Christ to them and to bring them up and grow them up in Christ. That's what discipleship is. See, we get hung up on whether or not somebody says they're a Christian. That's what we get focused on. I'm not focused on that at all. If I'm interviewing somebody, I don't even ask them whether or not you're a Christian. I want to look at your life. I want to look at how you live. That tells me what I need to know. And if you know Jesus and you're growing in Christ, it will become immensely obvious in the process. I will not have any problem discerning that if I have a chance to drill down and talk to enough people. And that brings us to merchant bankers. And I'm, let me just talk to you about merchant bankers. How many of you have ever heard of the term merchant banker? Merchant banker was a concept 100 years ago. It's pretty much lost today. A merchant banker was an individual, generally with his own capital, that was looking for opportunities for investments. And with that investment came a discipling relationship. They would partner with somebody. Let's say the guy was a retail merchant. He had a dry goods store or something like that. 
And the merchant banker would come along and say, okay, I see you need inventory. You've got a good location here. You know, I've spent enough time with you to know that you're called to do this, and I want to help you walk this out. I want to help you become all God called you to be. And so he invests with that guy, and he becomes a partner with him in building that business, lining up with the purpose of God in that man's life. Now, the interesting thing about an investment banker is they're totally different from the bankers today. Those of you that have borrowed money from a banker today, borrowed money from bankers. Now, how many of you have had things go south with that loan? What happened to that relationship with that banker? It went in the toilet in a hurry. There's absolutely no such thing as thick and thin with a banker. If it's not good, it's bad. If it's bad, you're in the classified loan department and you are mud. And there's no such thing as getting an additional capital. The merchant banker is totally different. Merchant banker comes in. He's with you as part of this process. He's an advisor for you. He's helping you assess the situation and determine what course correction we need to make. And if you need more money, he's going to pony up. How many of you would like to have a partner like that? That would be a great partner. Well, I think that's what we're called to. We're called to become merchant bankers, investing in people that are lining up with the purposes of God for their life. And as we do that, not only will they prosper, that we're going to prosper as well. Because what prospers is alignment with God. I think the traditional markets, as they exist today, are greatly flawed. Increasingly, companies are capitulating to supporting sin. Abortion, homosexuality, things like that are continually being supported. We're still seeing a lot of acrimony, greed. Can you imagine that Saab filed bankruptcy? Can you imagine that? There's talk about General Motors filing bankruptcy. Ford may be filing bankruptcy. These companies that have been around for decades are falling apart. I have to believe there's judgment involved here. It seems like every day something else is coming out. Some new Ponzi schemes coming out, some new deception. I mean, UBS, one of the big investment firms, slapped with almost a billion-dollar fine for helping clients avoid taxes by hiding accounts in Switzerland. So how in the world can I have any confidence in this kind of investment climate? I'm looking basically for an exit strategy, and I'm looking to get out and find alternatives. And my alternatives are going to be finding men and women that are called of God to start businesses, run businesses, do projects, and try to support them in what God's called them to do. I think that's the way if you want to prosper and go forward in the 21st century. Managing sin is very difficult because you're managing a rebellious person. You got somebody that's out of order. Okay, you can't do this. You can do this. You can show up in. You can show up there. So suddenly, it becomes a micromanaging kind of thing. Micromanagement never works. I hate it. You hate it. You want to be let loose to do what you're called to do. That's where God wants you to be. And that only happens when you are in submitted relationships, being discipled by the people you're connected with, growing in Christ, doing what you're called to do. And then you will prosper. If you have somebody that you cannot disciple in your organization, you need to develop a plan. The plan is, is A and B. A, I'm going to try to disciple you. I'm going to invite you into a discipling relationship. I'm going to do all I know to do, pray, seek the Lord, talk to you, do everything I know to do to invite you into a discipling relationship. If you do not accept that, there will be a period of time I will give you, and then once it's over, plan B kicks in, and that is I release you, and I replace you with somebody that I can disciple. It's a good thing that you're not the general manager of the universe. Because if you're the general manager of the universe, you'd have to solve everybody's problems. But you don't have to. All you have to do is discern what problems you're supposed to solve and solve those. That's all. Isn't that nice? That's why we can go play golf. We have time for golf. That's nice. Thank you, Lord. All right. Well, we're out of time. This is just about being prudent. 
helping people do what they're called to do. That's how we need to be using our finances. Amen.